0: We have George Newberry with us here tonight. And I'm going to send everybody to your website, George. Head over to pre for more information about what he and his team work on there. But this is going to be an interesting conversation. I appreciate your time here tonight.
1: Thanks a lot, Jack, for having me on.
0: I took a look at your book that you have out. It's that Burn Zones. And I'll put the link to that as well in the show notes. But just based on the chapters alone, it looks like you've Had quite a lengthy career jumping from one thing to the next. How did you end up where you ended up
1: here? Yeah, sure. It's it's funny. Through my life, I've always set a goal. I work towards it. Lots of times I get to where I want to go, and then it gets boring, and I move on to something else. And it's sometimes I wish I just hit the goal and just was content with that. But that's how my mind works. I've tried as I've gotten older to get better at that. And I've done the the same thing for the last 14 years. So that's the longest time I've stuck to something. So I'll tell you, here's the journey. When I was young, I started delivering papers. When I was seven, I bought an ice cream truck where I would sell ice creams at football games and in the neighborhood when I was 13. At 15, I started a record company in my parents' garage. This is early eighties, Southern California. I put out eight albums of LA hardcore punk bands. And that was, that was fun. And then I decided they had the Olympics in 84 in LA. And I said, oh, I, they had the bike race. I said, oh, I'm going to become a bike racer. I get this idea that I just work really hard towards it. And lo and behold, 1988 comes around. I was in the Olympic trials and I finished 42nd. The year after that, I was I got good at bike racing. Actually, I was traveling around the country on a trade team, but you really don't make much money as a bike racer. And I was now 24. I had to find a real job. And I happened to get a job through a friend in a mortgage company, answering the phone and setting appointments for loan officers. And that was my job. And I went into that job knowing nothing about real estate, knowing nothing about mortgages. And six months later, by using the same focus and determination that I had applied during my bike racing career, I now was applying that to mortgages. And six months later, I was top producer. Two years later, had my own mortgage company, which is still around. And, uh, and then I started buying real estate. And I'd buy, I'd always look for the biggest challenges. So I'd buy the most challenged buildings I could find. These were, I started out with four units, then 19 units and 60 units. And the biggest property I bought in Los Angeles was 298 units in downtown Los Angeles. And this building was, it had sold, so I bought it in 1988, but it had sold in 1992 for 4 million bucks. The owner, the property was in such bad condition that the owner was put in jail for slum housing. They have a slum housing ask force in California and they put him in jail. So he sold it to another um, buyer for 2.5 million and he got put in jail. And so he sold it for $2 million and that guy got put in jail as well. So now no one wanted to buy the building because you're thinking easy logic, hey, buy this building, go to jail. And so they were selling it for 850,000. Now picture this, 298 units, downtown Los Angeles, 850,000, just ridiculously attractive numbers and they were marketing this property and no one wanted to buy it. And here comes me looking for a big challenge. I said, no, I'll buy it. And I knew some of these inspectors from the other, other projects that I'd done, granted much, much smaller. And they, they said, don't buy this thing. We're going to end up adversarial. You've done well on on these other projects, but this one is going to be a problem and I didn't listen and I went ahead and bought it now. These were inspectors. We had plumbing, fire, hell, electrical. There was a group of inspectors in this task force, and they would come around every month and they'd tell me, hey, you're doing good work. And at the outset of this thing, right after I bought it, they, they scheduled a meeting and they said, hey, you got six months to get this thing done. And if you don't get it done in six months, we can't selectively prosecute. But we're going to have to prosecute you. And I said, no problem, I'll do it. And so they'd come by every month and they say, hey, good job, you're making good progress. And I was making really good progress. But six months later, a friend of mine called me, and this is a couple of days before, before the new year. And he said, hey, you're in the paper. And I said, what for? And he said, oh, the headline is Redondo Beach man charged with 30-some criminal violations. And these were criminal housing violations. So now I was the one at risk of being put in jail. I was obviously quite concerned that was a very tough weekend it was on a friday that the newspaper came out and the first always thing the I,
0: case isn't it down yeah, that friday exactly. you gotta to toil over it all weekend, weekend. i got a, by yeah. my
1: stress, and i'll tell you the, the first thing i lived about 10 minutes from my parents house and the first thing i thought about was my mom sitting down for her morning cup of tea she's british and reading reading about me in the paper about all these criminal charges about against her son so I, I drove over as fast as I could to my parents' house. I grabbed the paper; it was the Los Angeles Times. They had not opened it yet. I pulled out that section and I said bye. And and I, and I didn't tell them until this was all over. I didn't really tell them uh, the full story of their son being at risk of, of, of going to jail. And and the whole weekend, stressed out. On Monday, I got a hold of my attorney. He called the city attorney. The city attorney said, "Hey, we can't selectively prosecute," but. We have heard from the task force that your client is making good progress. They allowed me to stay out of jail, continue to make progress. I paid a $10,000 fine and I was put on probation. but It was the lightest form of probation, summary probation, which basically means that as long as you don't get in trouble again, you don't go to jail. So I, 11 months later, I had this property signed off by all the inspectors and they had to come, there were a couple of false starts because they came out and they would find something. So there had to be one day where they could walk through every floor of the property and not find a single violation. And that, in fact, happened a few days before Thanksgiving in, in, that had to be 1999. And that was, and then I sold the property, made a significant amount of money. And that was a big, it was good and bad. A, I made some good money, so that was nice. I felt that I had a succeeded where everyone before me had failed. And so that was emboldening. But what it did was it made me very confident and maybe overconfident. I said, hey, I'm going to do this around the country. I'm going to buy the worst properties I could find, the biggest and the worst. And I'm going to turn them around and I could make good money doing that. And that's what I proceeded to do.
0: So, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but you just at the end there, you said you you believe that you might have gotten a little too big for your britches and tried to tackle some other projects. What do you mean by that? I know according to, your, to some of the stuff I've read, it sounds like you did lose quite a bit eventually and you had to bounce back. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, sure. It is. I had a string of success and then one extraordinary failure. So I'll tell you how that this played out. My my first big acquisition after the Ford Hotel in 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 Los Angeles was a property called Pickwick Plaza in Kansas City, Missouri, two hundred thirty three units. I bought it at a courthouse steps auction for one point six million dollars, and I proceeded to fix it up. And about a year and a half, two years later, I refinanced with Wells Fargo and. Again, I bought it for 1.6. I put in maybe a million and a half. So I was into about three. They raised it for 8.5 million and they gave me a $5 million loan. So I got all my money back plus, plus, and I still own the property, which is now operating in cash long. So I was like, wow, this is, I like this game. Let me do it again. So I started, I kept buying. I bought in Oklahoma City. I bought in Indianapolis. And then I found myself at a bankruptcy court where I went. To a bankruptcy court auction for Woodland Meadows Apartments in Columbus, Ohio, which was one of the largest apartment complexes in the entire country—eleven hundred units, one prop, one in one location, 52, 52 acres, one hundred twenty-two buildings—it was like a mini city. There were thousands of people. By the time I got it all occupied, there were thousands of people that were living there. Just this massive property with streets running through it, and uh, it was what was really attractive about it. It—it it was a really nice property. It, but it had, and it backed into the highest income area in Columbus, an area called Bexley. And here we had a low-income housing project, which had been through extraordinary mismanagement and now was, had gotten so bad that it was nicknamed Uzi Alley, Uzi after the gun, because it was a haven for drugs, gangs, prostitutes, just out of control. And, uh, but I could buy it cheap, it wasn't that cheap, but I bought it for 13 and a half million for 1100 units. It's pretty cheap. And so I bought it. I, and it, which was big news The local papers. There's, oh, here's this guy from California buying this property in uh, Uzi alley. Does he really know what he got into blah, blah, blah. And uh, the next headline was, Hey, this guy just moved in because I moved into the property. And most people thought that was really noble. Hey, this time it really may be different because this guy, if he doesn't have hot water, Neither did the tenants. And there were plenty of days at the beginning where there was no hot water. And but the reality wow. is, I'd done it at some of the prior properties. It was really A, I'm cheap. And B, it was tough to say, I hey, I'm going to spend money staying at the Hilton and then I got to go during the day to my low-income housing housing complex. So I wanted to be on the site and A, it saved money. But B, I heard firsthand what was going on, if things were I felt it like a tenant and and I'd responded accordingly. This was these were battles to turn them around. I relished the battle and it wasn't so I was battling people that I was battling years in, in many cases of mismanagement and challenges at the property and trying to turn this thing around. And I think it, it helped that I was there and some of the tenants appreciated that. Didn't mean that they wouldn't knock on my door and say, hey, something's wrong with my unit, but it was it was helpful. And we turned that property around. It was an extraordinary success story. And I'll tell you some of the things we did. There was, When we moved in, when I took over, there was a security force at the property. They had a, a dozen uniformed armed guards, all white. And they, and it, the way I saw it was they were almost debating the problem. In some cases, the, uh, a small situation would sometimes turn into a large situation and sometimes the security wasn't helping that. And I'll tell you probably one of the worst, most unbelievable things is one day I went down to the security office and there was a guy in the security office behind bars. There was actually a jail in the property, in the security office. So what the security would do is they would make citizens arrest and put the, usually tenants or friends of tenants, for whatever infraction, they would put them in the jail at the property. And then they would call the real police who would show up and then arrest the people. It was a, um, a challenge situation. And I, Hey, I asked him to please let that one guy go. He was in, our jail for marijuana possession. And I said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to have the jail. There's really something serious The police can come out and deal with it, but we're not going to have our people making these arrests. And that was soon, shortly thereafter, we actually disbanded the security force. We completely let them all go, laid them all off. And we replaced them with tenants who were part of, became part of a community patrol, unarmed. There were people, just as a majority of of any housing complex across the country, the majority of the tenants there typically just want to have a nice, safe place to live. And a lot of the tenants wanted to be part of that. And we started turning around the property. We, we, the crime rate dropped by more than half. We were able to, um, and we created a training program so that many of the tenants were part of the, the crews that did the work for the property. And, and it really helped turn it around. We, when we started that training program, people would, would show up and the first time, like five people showed up, but after they actually got real jobs, they, lots of people were showing up and we had speakers from the outside. We had contractors teaching tenants, hey, here are some skills and it really worked. It was something that got a lot of media attention. And then other companies from outside the complex started, started hiring our tenants. And it was really when somebody would see tagging a wall that they had just painted. They, wait, I don't want to have to paint that over. Do this at another place. So it really turned their property around, a a huge success story. And now I was further emboldened, but there was an unhappy ending to Woodland Meadows. The property on Christmas Eve, 2004 was hit by an ice storm, which was the largest federally declared disaster in Ohio history and just devastated our property. And that was the I triggered this extraordinary sequence of events in which I ended up losing everything. And at twenty not only losing everything, I ended up twenty six million dollars in debt. I looked back at at fourteen years worth of extraordinarily hard work and I gave it all back and then some. And that was uh, a a challenge period in my life and that is that's this that's my journey.
0: It, what happened there? Did you just not have the proper insurance or But it was, yeah,
1: it's, no, I had the insurance. I had $50 million of insurance. What I did not realize, because I'd never been in this predicament before, is that if you have a really, really big claim, like we did, the insurance companies will just not pay and they will make you sue them in order to get them to pay. And they know, or they appear to know that the longer they go without paying, the more, uh, at least in my case, the more distress you'll get, and eventually you'll settle for something less than you really are entitled to, but you feel that, hey, you don't have a choice. And so they came out, the insurance company came out a few days after the storm, and they let me know that we were not covered. They said that this damage was caused by the boilers and the boilers, we didn't have boiler endorsements on our insurance, and as a result, we're not covered. Now, that was ludicrous. We had the boilers inspected two or three months before the storm. The state came out and inspected them, and they were fine. And the reason all the damage occurred is that the property was, uh, the temperature outside was negative eight. There was, the power had been knocked out to half the city of Columbus, including all of our property. And so once the power goes out, all the boilers stopped working again, because of the power outage. And so when the boilers stopped working, the heat or the water that gets heated in the boilers and gets pumped through the each of the units and radiates heat. That all stopped working. And so that water that was in the radiant in the pipes all froze. And then the domestic water all froze. So picture this. Thousands of people fi- living there. No electric. No heat. And no water. And temperatures outside in the below zero. Just an extraordinary situation. As it So what happened is uh, several days later, once the temperature started warming up, the, uh, the pipes uh, all started bursting. And... S- all these 122 buildings, the first four units were partially subterranean. So you, the window was at, at, your chin would be at the window. And that was a, so all those first four units got flooded with water. All the other units were were significantly damaged. It, there were trees in the buildings. It was a, a disaster area. In fact, the Red Cross opened a shelter for our tenants across the street at a church. And it was a truly disaster. And that is now my, my I went to my attorney and my attorney said, "Hey." this is what the insurance companies do. We have to file a lawsuit. Eventually, they're going to pay. And so with that, I thought, oh, okay, so this will work out. I just had to play their game. And so we filed the lawsuit. I I started. I made probably the biggest mistake that I could have. I made several myself at the time, but the big mistake I made was I said, okay, I'm going to borrow money on my other properties, which we're doing fine. And I'm going to take that money. I'm going to use that to fund the uh, the renovations. And that, that was a Big mistake. What I should have done is done nothing. Hey, if the insurance isn't going to pay, I can't fix this up and, and let that property kind of win or lose on its own. Instead, I involved all my other properties, borrowed on them. And I started using that money to repair with the meadows. Now in my original thinking was, Hey, this is going to take $5 million. So we spent the $5 million and there was still tons of work to do. We kept finding more damage. So then we borrowed more money and by summer, and again, this happened at Christmas by the following summer. I was out of money and I had about 200 people a day working at the property. I I dropped it down to 20 and the city started asking, Hey, what's the pace is slowing. These, we got to get this property back in, in back fully habitable. And, uh, and at some point the mayor summoned me to city hall and said, Hey, we need you to bring your tax returns or financials for the property, blah, blah, blah. So I brought them all and they said, Hey, do you want to, um, that we have some other plans for the meadows. Do you want to take your. Section 8 contract, your tax, low-income housing tax credits. You want to take those and move them to another property that you could buy. And we'd support that. And I was single-minded. I I know my vision is going to rebuild this property. So I said, thank you very much, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to rebuild it in the meadows. Now that single-minded focus and determination of reaching a goal, which had generally served me well through my life now was not serving me well because What I did not read between the lines is that the city, if I did not agree to their offer, they were going to still do everything they could to take the property. And in fact, that's what's happened. They eventually took control of the property. They started by coming out to the property and issuing notices, uh, three-day notices to evacuate the property. They said that all 122 buildings were subject to imminent collapse. And this is a result of Those us taking off drywall allegedly exposed a construction defect by a prior that was done by a prior owner. And as a result, these buildings were subject to imminent collapse. Now, I, I didn't believe it. And so I hired an engineer. The engineer came out and said, these buildings are fine. And we went to court and got a temporary restraining order against the city. And we, we showed up in court. We had our, our engineer to testify. We had his report and the city was there. And the judge was like to the city, what's your basis? And they had no engineer's report. They had no engineer. They just said, it looks like they're subject to imminent collapse. So that the judge gave me the temporary restraining orders and we, and they also entered a deal that said, okay, if we make us on rebuilding the rest of the property, then then the city would uh, back off and would not proceed with this evacuation. So I told my attorney, make the best deal you can, with the insurance company, get whatever you can, and then we're going to settle. And I get to finish building this thing out. Now this, the insurance company, we eventually settled for $32 million. Now, obviously that's a massive amount of money, but the damages were over forty-five million. so it was really a good deal for the insurance company to get out for that amount. We took the 32 million, we were back to 200 people a day at the property. We we had a, the court appointed a monitor to attend our construction meetings every week and do inspections. And that monitor was reporting back to the court that we were ahead of schedule, that we we're making great progress. Now, unfortunately, the city, despite being a party to the settlement agreement, they went ahead and had a meeting with HUD and told HUD to pull our contract. So HUD came out. They were at the property about five minutes and they said, hey, there's work that needs to be done here. You have 30 days to fix it. Now, I had just entered into this agreement with the court that I could get this done in six months. I could not get it done in 30 days. So I went back to court and said, what? I said, this is inconsistent. We, we made this deal with the court that we're going to get this project done in six months. All the reports are coming back saying we're ahead of schedule and the city, and, and HUD is telling us we have 30 days to, to get this thing done. Uh, the judge ordered HUD to appear in court, and HUD sent word back and said, we're not coming. We are not. We're a federal agency. We're not bound by a municipal court. So they didn't show up. And at 30 days after they came out, they came back out. They were out there for about five minutes. They said, you're not done with the work. They then sent me a letter saying your HUD contracts are all terminated. And that was the end. I'd spent a bunch of that money. And now eventually the city took ownership of the property, demolished all the uh, the buildings, got rid of low-income housing in that section of Columbus. And now they own the property. Years later, they still own the property. And that is, and I left town just absolutely broke with all my other properties in foreclosure and other distress. And, and I'd signed personal guarantees on just about everything. So I ended up, that made up the large chunk of my $26 million.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's a heck of a story. So you went from distressed properties now to distressed mortgages.
1: Yeah. What happened is it was humbling. I felt feelings of failure, shame guilt, embarrassment. Where did I go wrong? What could I have done differently? You always play it back. If only I'd done this differently, then everything would have turned out better. But I made the decisions. I bought the property in the first place. I made the decisions. I took the risk. I got, I made these deals because they were risky. And this is the one bet that did not pay off. And uh, that was, uh, I always figured, Hey, if I work really hard, I can make anything pay off and it didn't work this time. So that all by. The end of 2005, I was broke, and 2005, 2006, and but then in 2007, I started hearing about hey, there's this, um, there's millions of families at risk of foreclosure, and my thought was, hey, this this is something I could use my experience as an overwhelmed debtor. I could use it to help these other families who are suffering overwhelmed, uh, who are also overwhelmed with debt, and many times those same feelings, shame, guilt, embarrassment. I could feel what they were going through because when this happened to me, I was getting sued, I was getting served with lawsuits, collection notices, collection calls, everything bad that could happen was happening and uh, to just an extreme degree. And I never filed bankruptcy, so the stuff just kept coming at me. And, uh, and so I, I, could, I felt my experience would be helpful to all these families that were at risk of foreclosure, so why not start a nonprofit, which was American Homeowner Preservation. We started in 2008. The mission was to help families at risk of foreclosure stay in their homes. And that is, that's how we started. It was myself. We had an office in Cincinnati, Ohio, myself and two other people. And we, it's now grown a great deal. We, we originally were trying to advocate on behalf of each family with their service or mortgage holder. We had thousands of families that came to us. We were only help, only able to help about 10%. So we changed our approach and we became a for-profit and we started buying defaulted mortgages from banks and hedge funds, primarily in low and moderate neighborhoods across the country. And that worked because once we could buy these mortgages and we could buy them at big discounts, we could then go to the family, share the discounts with them. If they wanted to stay in the home, we could modify If they didn't want to stay, we'd offer them cash for Dean and Lou. And that was the path that worked. We bought more than 10,000 mortgages in the last decade. And now we've started a co- that cut company that we started with three people, American Homeowner Preservation, has morphed into nine different companies from a national mortgage servicer, a national mortgage originator, a title insurance company, and several other companies, a trustee, as well as Pre-REO. So Pre-REO is a marketplace where institutions sell their non-performing mortgages to real estate investors and so it's like auction.com except instead of selling auction.com sells REOs from institutions to real estate investors Pre-REOs sells non performing mortgages from institutions to real estate investors and that is a service a platform that we're really excited about we're getting great interest from institutions we anticipate at some point there's going to be another downturn and when that downturn hits we're trying to build our capacity so that we can be a preferred outlet or the number one outlet for these distressed mortgages to get them in the hands of real estate investors. Ultimately, the best buyer for a defaulted mortgage is somebody local who can, if it goes REO, they're okay. In fact, some of them, I'm happy if it goes REO, but if if it goes a different direction, a modification or some other solution, they're happy that way too. But that is the profile of the buyers that we're attracting to pre-REO and we're getting institutions. They are, they, a lot of the, we have some of the biggest funds in the country, some wallet some funds backed by Goldman Sachs and other big uh, big investment banks that are selling their defaulted assets on our platform. So it's an exciting time. It's something that we're really trying to build for uh, in anticipation of the next downturn. We both
0: have been using the term REO and pre-REO for those new listeners among us. We better tell them what that acronym means.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So an REO REO is is real estate owned. It is a property that's been foreclosed on typically by a bank or other mortgage lender. And oftentimes it's then sold, they sell it. Usually it's a profile, a typical REO is something that needs, maybe needs a little bit of work. Sometimes it needs a lot of work. And so it's bought by an investor and then they do the work and they rent it or they resell it. Now, pre-REO is basically something that's a defaulted mortgage loan that is either in foreclosure or eligible for foreclosure and has the potential to become an REO. In our experience, once a loan falls into foreclosure, and the majority of the time, it will end up being foreclosed upon. That is, but there are some that go to Dean & modifications, short sale, different uh, different paths, but the majority do become REO. That's the difference.
0: Sure. And then your platform, can anybody go there and search for these opportunities or mm-hmm. is it have, is they have to be a part of a no. bigger organization?
1: No, that's the beauty of it. It's anyone can go at pre-REO. They can right away register, free buyer registration. And then they can have access to see all the pre-ROs that are available. And that is, yeah, we wanted to be open to everybody. Historically, the non-performing note market has been very opaque, has been tough to to break into for new investors. We had the, when we, um, when we first started buying mortgages, it was really tough to figure out, hey, we want to buy mortgages, but just because you want to buy mortgages doesn't mean you can buy them. They're tough. It's tough to find. So that was uh, something that we, we have grown. We had to do a lot of networking to find people to actually help. Sell us our first group of mortgages. Once we started buying, then people started reaching out to us, but that was, that was always a So
0: challenge. it's an interesting concept, the pre-REO being able to help these families if they want to stay in their properties. What type of discounts have you typically seen when a company is trying to just get this off their
1: paper? Absolutely. So the, if the property is worth 200 and let's say the the mortgage is 220, let's say it's typically, the mortgage will typically be sold on pre-REO for 75% of the property value. So in that case, $200,000 $200, property value, the mortgage will likely sell for $150,000. 25% discount, and then we finance it. So if the investor wants, we'll provide 75% financing. So they put down $37,500, 25% of the $150,000, we will finance $112,500. And oh. so that's made it really accessible because most real estate investors almost always get loans to buy and you leverage their money and so that, that way they can buy multiple multiple properties. So here they can buy multiple pre-REOs.
0: So you act as a financial institution as well, then to help the investor with, yeah, the, here, with the
1: acquisition. Absolutely. So we make pre-REO makes money in two ways. And it we make it transparent too. So we we charge a five percent program fee, which is like a buyer's premium at the closing. So if someone buys a pre-REO for a hundred thousand dollars, they'll pay five thousand dollars at the closing. That's how we make our money. And that's just like auction.com or Hubzoo. Everyone charges 5%. The other thing we do though, is there's really no financing available in the market to buy defaulted mortgages. If you're a really big hedge fund, there's financing. But if you're buying 50 or a hundred million, but if you're buying one or five or 10 defaulted mortgages, there's not financing available. So we created the ability to finance. So we'll provide the financing to our investors, to our pre-REO buyers. And So that, that's, uh, we do that at 12% and then we crowdfund. So if uh, we crowdfund that money. So if somebody wants to just, they can't find a pre-REO that they're interested in, they can invest in pre-REO and they order 7% return. Basically we're taking that crowdfunded money where we pay out investors up to 7% and we, we loan it to investors buying these notes for at 12%. And so that's the other part of the revenue model.
0: So then the the person can go to the current resident, if, that, if we catch it early enough, because you've purchased it at a discount. Now you can reduce their monthly payments, allowing them to stay in it, maybe extend the mortgage to 30 years again, that type of thing. There's probably a variety of creative ways to help them stay in the property at that
1: point. You're absolutely right. They can extend the majority, reduce the interest rate, reduce the payment, whatever's appropriate. If there's some delinquent, lots of times in this market where values have gone up. And so many a times some of these families are, have equity or are close to having equity. Take the delinquency, will add it onto the loan amount, will then extend the loan term, just like you said. And so you keep the payment affordable, make it, make, make it less than what they were having trouble paying before. And lots of times the families will run into job loss, divorce, death in the family, med- unexpected medical expense. One of these things will impact their ability to pay. But lots of times it's something that is short. Four months later, get another job. Four months later, something happens, so they're back on track. But that, those four months that they missed, if it was $2,000 a month, all of a sudden they're $8,000 in the hole and they can't get out of the. I can come up with the $2,000 a month, but I can't come up with the $8,000. So sometimes it's just taking that $8,000 spreading it out over time so they can catch up. There's all kinds of things to do. And investors, lots of times real estate investors will respond to that and say, wait, I like the idea of doing a modification, but I don't want to hold this loan for 30 years and just collect payments. That's, I want to invest, add value and, and reset, resell. Like with an REO, they get an REO, they're going to do just that. So what we've done is, but how I explain it is, if you buy a non-performing mortgage today at a discount, you do a modification, the family starts paying again, six or 12 months of on-time payments from that homeowner, you can likely sell that loan at a, a, as a reperforming loan for a significant premium. And so that is the other component to that strategy. That said, the majority of what is on priorio will end up being foreclosed upon. It's just, that's what the statistics tell us. Once it's in foreclosure, mm-hmm. it's going to get foreclosed upon. Now, that means that the investor may get the property back. In some cases, especially lately, a lot of them have simply been selling at the courthouse steps and then they just, they buy it at a discount, then they get whatever the bid that the investor sets, however much they set the bid at. they may just make their profit by having it sold at the courthouse steps. So the investor has control over the dispositions. If a family wants to mod, the investor has to say yes or no, or they could say, like counter it, I I could, it needs to be extended for another two years or whatever that whatever they want to do. And that is, so the investor gets control over the destination, ultimately it's their return and the asset that they now control.
0: Sure. So it, it sounds fairly straightforward. I feel like I'm missing something here. What are some of the downfalls? Like, what am I missing?
1: I'll tell you, we've been doing this for about uh, two, almost two years, pre-REO. We've been, AHP's been around for 14 years, the parent company, but pre-REO for two years. The, the market in that time frame has gone up. So people have done really well on the platform. A lot of people have made tens of thousands. Some people have made hundreds of thousands. This is on single assets. One guy made over a million dollars on a single pre-RO that he bought. It was a big one. He bought it for 1.8 million, but he, he did just extraordinarily well. And that is the, so where's the downside? Now the downside, where's the risk is that if the property values start going down, which is potential, it's going to happen. Real estate hit historically is cyclical. So the real estate values could go down and that would impact how much money the investors um how well they do. Now, the good news is because they're buying at a 25% discount that insulates them largely from, from market fluctuations, simply, hey, if it went down 10%, there's still money to be made, just gonna be less money. As the property values go down, so will the prices of the mortgages. And right now it's 75% values. The average in the, between 70 and 75% of values where these, the priorities have been selling, but once the market, there's more supply, the market for the resale cools off a little bit, that percentage and the prices are likely to to drop. So it's a, that's how the market is. It's gonna be something where I encourage investors right now to buy a pre-REO, to experience it, get experience, get that experience today. And then knowing that when the downturn hits, there'll be an overabundance of opportunities on pre-REO is what I expect. And, but you don't wanna be learning then, you wanna learn it today and then be ready and to go once this thing really turns up.
0: Does your platform serve the entire country then, or is it just, yes. is there, yeah?
1: Absolutely. Nation, nationwide we've offered. That said, I don't think we've had some of the rural state, some of the less lightly populated states. We probably haven't had much activity, but I know we've had pre-REOs in more than 40 states. Sure.
0: Yeah, I, because the reason I ask is because I've tried to market to like pre-REOs in my market. For some reason, I can't even seem to pull that list. Maybe that's just because it's not publicly available.
1: Yeah. In most states, it is public record. It's just sometimes maybe tough to get the records, but I'll tell you that the, uh, the market's also been thin. COVID, the mor- moratoriums have all ended, the foreclosure moratoriums. But that said, there's still a lot of the servicers and mortgage lenders are trying to find ways to keep the families in their homes and exhaust those options. So I expect the foreclosure rates to really rise. They're rising now, but expect it to really rise in 2023.
0: Yeah. You bring up the economic turmoil we're experiencing right now I feel like we're just early into this what do you see for regarding your market what kind of changes are you going to see
1: yeah i here's what how I interpret the market today the we're on the longest expansion in our country's history and historically the market expands and contracts which is healthy that's the way it should be it has expanded for an extraordinary period of time it is due in fact it's overdue for contraction and we're starting to see some of that the if you look back at 2006 7 you'll see that the um, the rate of appreciation accelerated and then hit a high point. And then it started dropping. And it's, the property values weren't dropping, just the rate of appreciation started slowing down. And then in 2008, it actually went to the point where, hey, the property values aren't going down, aren't going up at a slower pace. Now they're actually going down. And we haven't hit that point. So I'd still, I, they're still down to the property values are going up, but just at a slowing pace. And I think at some point over the next... Call it six to 18 months. There will be that point where, wait, property values are going down. And once people hear that, the market, that kind of feeds it. It's kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. People, everyone, uh uh-oh, the market's in trouble. I think people already feel that right now. But I'll tell you, just, I I still see, we have tons of, a lot of REOs that that we market that we still see a lot, multiple offers, people paying strong prices. Family members who are buying homes right now, they keep coming back disappointed. Hey, I made three offers. I got outbid on everyone. And and so that's still out there today, but that it's got to be near the end of it. And whether it's six, four months or nine or 12, we have to be nearing the end.
0: Yeah. I can just speak for my market. The time on market has started to lengthen now that the interest mm-hmm. rates have been going up. No, this has been a really interesting conversation, George. I, in fact, I hope you'll consider coming back because I feel to. like we've just tip of the iceberg when it comes to your experiences and some other things here, especially regarding notes because we could spend all kinds of time just on that aspect. Well, before I let you go, I do have some follow-up questions here, but before I give, do that, I want to send everybody to your website again, pre I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. So if you're on your podcasting app, swipe right there and I'll make it a clickable link. You could just head over to George's website. But before, first of all, is there a question or concept you wish we would have covered here today?
1: No, I think it's, you know, I shared my story. I shared the current opportunity, which is what we see as a great opportunity for real estate investors to transition to note investing, especially as it's still, there's still limited inventory in a lot of markets. So it's a way to find a steady flow of deals, even when the real estate opportunities are limited.
0: So I got a, ra- a few rapid fire questions. You can answer Please. them as quickly as you want here. Okay. Uh, so first of all, we think Rich Dad, Poor Dad is almost like a stairway to heaven. That's not a loud answer. What's one real estate investing book you would recommend our listeners to, to read?
1: Sure. So I got to be selfish, but it's a good book. Let me see if I put it on the screen. Burn Zones is the book sure. that I wrote about the story that I just shared. It was it's available on Amazon. It is, as, I, as my other business started growing as I, as I grew, I had to explain what I shared on the story today to investors who were looking to invest. And I was explaining over and over because they'd see the news stories, the bad credit, the judgments. And finally I wrote a book which kind of shared the whole, everything that happened and, and so burn zones is available. I think it's a a lot of, it's has a lot of good reviews on, on, on Amazon. And what's most, what's really, I think been rewarding about it is people come up to me and said, Hey, I had these, this thing happened to me. I had this failure or something like that. And uh, they appreciate that they, that I shared my story and also that, that I've rebounded from it.
0: Sure. What what was the current? What's the last book you read and would you
1: recommend it? Sure. What is the last book I read? That is a, obviously, I haven't read it. you know, you know what's a good book? Scaling Up, Burn Harnish. I read that in the last six months. It's a good book. I've actually read it like five or six years ago, but it was helpful to refresh as my business grows. But some of the stuff that impacts me, or I can better relate to it today. Scaling Up, Burn Harnish, great book.
0: Mindset is such a huge aspect to our business and keeping your mind, and mental health correct what are what's the one thing you do to keep your mindset and your motivation to move for keep moving forward
1: sure i need to i need to exercise i i run i ran this morning up in the in 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 the woods near near where i live it's that's been really helpful stressful times you go out running it could be running could be playing tennis could be working out whatever you do riding a peloton for it is it for me and i think i hear from others too you go out you start the activity with a problem, you come back with a solution and it's something that really is, uh, is refreshing and uh, sometimes you got to force yourself to do it, tear yourself away from work, tear yourself away from, uh, from the problem. But that 30, 45 minutes, an hour that you spend can be really, pays huge dividends. Not only keeping you healthy, but it burns off some of that stress.
0: Okay. What is the one, what's the best piece of entrepreneur or business advice you've ever
1: received? As a business owner, three good employees equals one great employee and i've learned to hire to pay for the best employees i can find and i shouldn't say employees team members who you just get so much more mileage out of somebody who's driven ambitious uh, wants to be great and uh, and that is something i do i appreciate the good employees but i really want to surround myself with great employees
0: and on the flip side what's the worst business advice you've received
1: worst business advice i've received is to Wow. That's a good question. Thing is, I'll give you some good advice and then I can try and twist around and make it bad advice. So don't look back. So don't look back. So it's really tough. You think about the NBA, if you watch basketball or whatever, misses a shot, gets fouled, something goes wrong. They got to get it out of their mind right away and keep playing, go to the next play. If they keep it in their mind, it's going to affect their play. Same thing in business, same thing in life. Something goes bad. You need to move on promptly. Let that other stuff slide off your back. Otherwise it's like a cloud that hovers over you. So what would be the the, the learn from your mistakes, you yeah. actually have to learn from your mistakes. You're actually going to learn more from your mistakes than your failures. But in terms of the bad advice part of that is, I guess if you're constantly, you want to learn from it, but you want to, you got to move on. And so I guess. Yeah.
0: I heard an analogy once regarding that. I heard somebody say, if you keep looking back at the past, you're going to trip over the present.
1: That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. You need to stay, you need to move on. The yeah. past, it's good, good for success or failure. A lot of success. Like I've had a lot of success. Sometimes it's been bad for me. Like some of the things makes you overly, I, at some point it may be overly emboldened. And, and this thought that I can get, I can serve no matter what some of those in me, I can get through it. And that generally worked until the one time it didn't and caused me just personal financial collapse.
0: Sure. And then one last question, if you could get into DeLorean and head back to when you were first getting into real estate investing, what is one piece of advice you would tell yourself?
1: Be patient, and I would've probably kept what I bought. I've touched thousands of pieces of real estate, thousands of notes, and oftentimes I bought when the market's weak, got sold when the market's strong, and sometimes the opposite, unfortunately. But it would've been, I should've probably set aside some and just say, I'm gonna keep this. Mix up, buy, sell, make cash. But I kept rolling the cash into new deals. Why not set aside some and, and anticipate at some point I'm going to have some challenging times? And I was, I have, I'm less, less optimistic now than I was back then, but at, and I'm still an optimist. But the, but I do see risk more. And I know that risk is, you know, risk, danger, failure is lurking around every opportunity. And you have to navigate that. And I think when I was younger, I definitely didn't recognize it. So be a little more cautious, a little more prudent. Don't, don't lie, dive. Now, the rag, The reality is some of the successes I had was because I was a really quick start. If I saw an opportunity, I grabbed it. And, and but I didn't always look. And that still served me well most of the time, but not always, not always. George,
0: this has been a great conversation. Thanks for putting up with my rapid fire there at the end.
1: Oh, no problem. But
0: again, head over to prereo.com And I hope to talk again sometime.
1: Sounds good. Thanks for Thanks a lot.
0: Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes.
1: See you next time.